0: Part Three, Section Three, Chapter Twenty Nine B, of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull, Chapter Twenty Nine B, The Emergence of Terrestrial Vertebrates. Time of Emergence. The evidence here is twofold first the fossil record and second the geological evidence of climatic conditions such as we have assumed the fossil evidence which will be reviewed in greater detail later points to a time earlier than upper devonian for it is upon sediment referable to that period that the earliest known footprint of a terrestrial vertebrate has been impressed the time of emergence therefore cannot be later than the age of this footprint and from the nature of things must somewhat antedate it although how much we have no means of knowing as it was a time of accelerated evolutionary change the climatic evidence points to the same result for as barrel has shown by a careful study of the sediments and of other phenomena connected with the rocks of devonian age these were times of warmth and seasonal rainfall tending toward more marked semi-aridity of climate in the upper devonian there is moreover found to be a concurrent elimination of sharks from fresh waters with a consequent dominance of dipnoans crossopterygians in the fish fauna of these fishes certain could and did adapt themselves after the manner of their living descendants to the increasingly long dry seasons until the latter became so long that the period of activity was not commensurate with the creature's life needs. Then came the emergence, for instead of estivation the animal must adopt some other mode of life, which would prolong the time of its activity, in spite of the climatic restrictions. Thus the more ambitious among the lung-breathers, not content with the limitations imposed upon their lives, emerged from the age-long aquatic home and ventured into the new and untried habitat. Many may have essayed the emergence, but it is probable that relentless nature, weeding out the less fit, for so valorous an undertaking, destroyed all but a single sort, for there is no evidence that the ancestry of the amphibia is to be found in more than one evolutionary lineage. Ancestry. In spite of the many similarities which exist between the Nipnusti and the Amphibia there are few authorities who hold to a possible direct derivation of the one from the other, for very serious anatomical difficulties stand in the way, one of which is the very peculiar and specialized type of limb, the archotegyrium, which this group of fishes possess, and out of which it is seemingly impossible to construct the terrestrial hand or foot, the crossoptergi, on the other hand, exhibit few of these obstacles, in fact there are practically none which evolution cannot overcome. The general consensus of opinion, therefore, would derive the land-dwelling forms either from crossopterygi, as such, or possibly from some, as yet undiscovered related group. CHANGES UPON EMERGENCE Partial Loss of Armor The essential changes undergone by the emerging form, or first partial loss of armour, for while the earliest amphibians, the stegocephalia, from the Greek to cover, and head, are armoured, the armour is confined mainly to the head, as the name signifies, to the breast girdle, and to oblique rows of small scales, chiefly on the underside of the trunk and tail, there is no evidence of their having possessed the heavy enamelled scales of the ganoid ancestor. Loss of unpaired fins. The unpaired fins are, of course, strictly of aquatic use, and their loss upon emergence is to be expected. They do, however, recur in forms which, filled with heimwa, have returned to their ancestral habitat. Thus certain salamanders show a rather well-developed caudal web of skin, which in the crested newt extends forward along the back, and many aquatic larvae, those of frogs and toads, also have well-developed unpaired fins, but these are new structures which have arisen in response to immediate need and bear no genetic relationship to the equivalent fins of fishes, the principal proof thereof lying in the fact that there is no trace in the amphibian of supporting fin-rays such as all fish fins show. Development of Terrestrial Limb One of the most essential changes upon emergence was the modification of the paired fins of the fish ancestor to support the body on the mud, a function to which they were clearly inadapted in their original condition. The paired fins of the dipneustae are, as we have seen, archityrygia, that is, having a long-jointed bony axis on one or both sides of which arose a series of parallel rays to support the fin membrane. Such a type of limb, while it may be used as a prop, or for slow-crawling propulsion in a water-borne form, is in no known instance of suitable strength to support the entire weight of the animal when out of water, nor is it of sufficient surficial area to carry its owner over soft mud, for here a broad member is necessary.' then too the skeletal elements are such that one cannot see the slightest prophecy therein of the standard framework of the terrestrial foot with the crossopterygians on the other hand this is not true for here the limb is different having a broad basal lobe containing several bones and a fringe-like expansion so arranged that a much more adequate support is already present even in the fish stage of evolution it is particularly in the pectoral fin of the fish soricturus tellori from the upper devonian that the terrestrial limb is foreshadowed the shoulder bones corresponding bone for bone the single proximable bone of the fin to the humerus the next two to the radius and ulna and the remainder of some of them to the bones of wrist palm and digits Certain bones have naturally been lost, and others added, and the entire fin rayed portion of the limb abandoned, with the relinquishment of the swimming function, but the whole metamorphosis requires no undue tension of the imagination. The actual transitional limb is as yet unknown to us, but the most ancient footprint, Thynopis, is certainly not that of a completely evolved foot, and may thus throw light upon the process of evolution. This footprint, while giving no clue to the skeleton of the upper and lower arm and wrist, does give a very adequate idea of the digital structure, which is highly peculiar. There are but two completely formed fingers, probably the first and second, the cleft between them extending deep into the sole of the foot. The phalangeal pads in a rounded terminal claw-like portion are already developed, and there appears on the outer side of digit, two the rudiment of the third, as though it arose there as a lateral bud, and below this on the outside of the foot, the possible, onlodge of digit four. If this is a normal footprint, as we suppose it to be, it seems to prove that the terrestrial foot, instead of being five-toed from the beginning, and that is certainly the standard, undifferentiated type today, began as a two-toed organ on the outer side of which the remaining digits arose in orderly succession until the typical number was acquired and the member became standardized that this may have been the case is not only evidenced by the unique footprint which we have discussed but the arrangement of the nerves and muscles in the major and minor axes of the foot and limb are corroborative the ontogeny of the salamander's foot as figured by rabel shows the same budding of the lateral digits as the Thynopus track implies, so that, without having seen the footprint, Professor Wilder, as a result of his embryological studies, postulated an ancestral foot striking like that of Thynopus. Loss of Gills The ancient fish gills born on the gill arches were also lost upon emergence, for in every instance where permanent gills are seen in living amphibia, They are external, dermal structures of later origin, and not strictly homologous with the internal gills of the fishes. Some amphibian gills, it is true, seem to be internal, as they are occasionally covered by a fold of skin, the operculum, so that they thus come to lie in a gill chamber. But they develop before the gill clefts open, are restricted to the outer side of the bronchial arches and are always covered by an ectoderm, all of which goes to prove them new organs which have assumed the old lost function of aquatic respiration. FOSSIL RECORD FOOTPRINTS. The earliest record of a terrestrial vertebrate is the single footprint of Thynopis antiquus, mentioned above. This is impressed upon a slab of sandstone, and is from the uppermost Devonian, It was found in 1896 by the late Professor Beecher of Yale, and by him presented to the museum where it is now treasured. These same beds contain ripple marks, mud cracks, and impressions of raindrops, and land plants also come from the same general horizon. A characteristic marine mollusk, Nuculana, is preserved in the footprint slab. The associated strata show dominant delta conditions on the outer margin of which the sea had contributed to the material, for in the wide oscillations of the strand line, characteristic of delta fronts, deposition under shore conditions and deposition under river conditions alternate. Barrel. This Devonian is directly overlain by lower carboniferous coal measures, represented in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick by the Horton series. These contain the remains of plants and crustaceans and the footprints of amphibians. No bones have been found in these beds, but the footprints indicate, at the beginning of the Carboniferous period, and before the deposition of the lower Carboniferous limestones, the presence of both large and small species similar to those of the coal formation. Dawson One interesting type, Hylopus hardingii. Found in the lower carboniferous shales of Parsborough, shows a stride five times the length of the foot and twice the width of the trackway, as though the creature which made it stood high on its legs like an ordinary mammal. This looks very much like a cursorial adaptation, if so, it is the earliest on record. The next higher level to record the passing feet of these primal terrestrial forms is the mock-chunk series of Pennsylvania, assigned by geologists to the upper half of the lower Carboniferous. Here has been recorded Paleosauropus primovis, a five-toed track of considerable size as these early forms run, and more careful search of these same beds at Pottsville, has brought to light several other species, some very small and delicately impressed. Other tracks have come from Virginia, and are referred to the same general age, Hinton Formation. First Skeletal Remains The first amphibian bones are from the Edinburgh Cole measures of Scotland, which have been referred to the Lower Carboniferous, and they are therefore of equivalent geological age to the Nova Scotian footprints. The oldest known skeletons are ascribed to the genera Loxoma and Philidogaster, These are in no sense transitional forms, but are fully developed amphibians. Above the lower carboniferous coal measures, we have red shales and sandstones, in which bones are invariably rare and footprints abundant, and so it is with the Scottish record. This has been explained by Barrel as follows. Red shales and sandstones are markedly barren of organic remains, yet footprints and plant impressions are present. The sediments were characteristically deposited under conditions where they were subjected to drying in atmospheric oxidation. The recurrent drying out implies a fall of level of the ground water. Such changes in ground water, through the induced circulation, favour solution of slightly soluble materials, such as the mineral matter of bones in the zone above. Even large and resistant bones are speedily destroyed if alternately wet and dried in the presence of oxygen and seeping waters. Such conditions are present in the delta soils of seasonally arid climates, but not in wind-formed desert deposits, nor in the swamps wherein organic matter accumulates. The wetter and cooler the climate, the more favourable become the conditions, for the spread of swamp conditions. Resulting in the accumulation of coal and permitting also the preservation of fossils. End quote. It was during the permocarboniferous times between that especially that the great deployment of amphibia occurred, and we have the various places, notably in Europe and in Nova Scotia and the United States, the remains of a varied assemblage of forms, some small, others huge, heavily armored types with complex vertebrae, others with complexly enfolded teeth, some with well-developed crawling limbs, yet others, limbless, elongate, indicating that already racial old age with its attendant degeneracy was upon them. One and all were alike in this way. They went, presumably, back to the waters to lay their eggs, and their young were therefore aquatic and breathed by means of gills. But there are among them many of which this cannot be proved and some may actually have been transitional not between amphibians and fishes but between amphibians and the succeeding class the reptilia certain of the forms such as cacops discovered in the permocarboniferous of texas by professor williston show such a combination of characters pertaining both to the amphibia and reptiles that as the distinguished discoverer says it may become necessary to revise our definition of the former group summary the nature of the geological record of amphibians indicates that they evolved under climates marked by seasonal dryness and inhabited river plains far from the sea the abruptness of appearance of well developed sustaining legs and feet points to an origin perhaps as far back as the lower devonian but a rapid expansion and evolution in the upper devonian they survived the change to more generally wet conditions in the lower mississippian but showed more convincingly their adaptation to semi-arid continental conditions through the footprint record they have left in the mock chunk shales the impressions of plants indicate that over the broad river plains of eastern pennsylvania there flourished each season an herbaceous vegetation of acrogens following the withdrawal of the river floods until the advancing seasonal dryness caused it to wither. No traces of an arboreal vegetation have been found, and this, taken in conjunction with other facts, suggests that in the dry season the streams completely vanished, or at least were reduced to rivulets and water-holes unable to afford sufficient underground water to support an arboreal vegetation on the banks. Barrel circumstances such as these were not conducive to piscine life but were just the conditions under which amphibians would thrive with further increase in aridity however such that no seasonal return of the waters occurred to make aquatic egg-laying possible came the restriction of the amphibia and the evolution of reptiles aside from the certain anatomical characteristics which we need not enumerate two features stand out sharply in the reptiles, in contrast to the amphibians. They are first the loss of gill-breathing forever, the reptiles and their descendants, the mammals and the birds, depending solely upon their lungs for oxygen, and second, the development of certain embryonic envelopes known as the amnion and allantois. The true significance of both loss of gills and gain of allantois is the same air-breathing young embryonic membranes the reptilian egg is a complex structure consisting not only of the male and female germplasm but of a considerate amount of nutritive yolk sufficient to carry the creature well along toward perfection of body and obviating the necessity of a larval stage into metamorphosis such as so many amphibians possess. This complex egg is surrounded by a protective envelope, the shell, and is invariably laid, if laid at all, on land. It is because of this last feature that the amnion and allantoys have arisen. The amnion is a two-layered membrane growing out of the ventral wall of the embryo and entirely enveloping it. Between the layers is the amniotic fluid, which not only guards the creature against mechanical jars, but also serves to resist sudden changes of temperature, which might be fatal to the growing young. In other words, the amnion is protective in its function. The allantois, on the other hand, is respiratory. It, too, is a double-layered or sac-like membrane, arising in much the same way, an outgrowth, in fact, of the urinary bladder of the amphibian it is abundantly supplied with blood vessels directly continuous with those of the embryo the allantois lies in its full development immediately beneath the porous shell through which oxygen can enter and passing by osmosis through the allantoic membrane oxygenate the included blood carbonic acid gas is given off at the same time the blood stream now carries the oxygen to the embryo and brings out more waste, and the process is continued. Thus it will be seen that the allantois has a function comparable to a lung and not to a gill, and it is to be doubted whether any reptilian egg could be placed in the water without drowning the embryo within. At all events no reptile bird nor mammal egg, each of which possesses an allantois, is ever laid in the water, but always on land, or else provision is made for its retention within the maternal body, as in certain snakes, the ichthyosaurs, and all mammals above monotremata. From this it will be seen that reptiles may survive under conditions of aridity. Many are true desert forms, where amphibia might perhaps live as adults, but could not pass on their life to future generations. It is logical, therefore, to believe that whereas semi-aridity with seasonally recurring rains, impelled amphibian evolution; true aridity, with undependable rains or none at all, making amphibian economy impossible, stimulated the evolution of the reptiles. End of chapter 29B. Recording by Amy Graymore, 2012. Amy's Mind to Your Mind. dot com.